If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find uh, this passage printed for you in the bulletin. It's a short one this morning. Uh, last week, uh, Tim led us through the first part of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And uh, we saw how uh, the focus of that prayer was spiritual things, spiritual strength and faith and uh, experiential knowledge of God. Well, here in these two verses, Paul ends his prayer with what we call a doxology, which means a word about glory. And so we want to talk today about the glory that belongs to God. Let me read to you 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and forever and ever. Amen. Well, I don't know if uh, you would say yes to this question. Uh, do you have a problem or any problems with prayer? I probably don't even have to ask, right? I think all of us at some point would say, yes, we've got problems. Uh, whether it's a problem with prayerlessness or a problem with knowing what to pray or when to pray or how to pray. Everybody's got a problem with prayer. But I think often we think the source of our problems uh, is not really the place where the source is. Uh, a lot of times we list out things like busyness. Anybody ever think, I'm too busy to pray? Or tiredness, I fall asleep every time I get around to praying or we think maybe it's lack of skill. I don't have the gift of prayer. I can't pray like so-and-so does. I've heard them pray, and I can't pray like that. Uh, or, you know, it could be just simple laziness. Uh, I get spiritually lazy. We think those problems are the source of our lack of prayer or our problems with prayer. But I think the source is found deeper. Uh, and Paul here shows us where it's found or where the solution to the problem is found, and it's this. We lack prayer, lack skill in prayer, because we lack a vision for glory. A praying life begins with a hunger and a thirst for the glory of God. And a praying life is fueled every step of the way by that same hunger and thirst. A church becomes a praying church because at the heart of that church is a hunger and thirst for God. Uh, there was a great um, French aviator and, and writer. He was an adventurer, kind of a most interesting man in the world kind of character uh, who once uh, made this remark, and it's, I think it's a beautiful quote. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work to do, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. He says, you know, if you want to build a boat and you want to get people excited about it, don't lecture them and don't show them blueprints and tell them all the steps that are going to, you know, be involved in the actual building of it. Instead, get them fired up about getting out there on the ocean. Because if you get a people who want to get out on the ocean and explore it, you won't be able to stop them from building a boat. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul ends his prayer with doxology, a word about glory, because he knows the reason why he's praying and the re he knows the reason why we're going to pray at the end of the day is that we're fired up 
about getting out onto the endless immensity of the sea of God's glory. So let's ask three questions this morning. You can find them outlined in your bulletin. Uh, First of all, what is God's glory? Second, uh, how do we glorify God in prayer? And then lastly, how will God be glorified forever? Okay, what is glory? How do we glorify God in prayer? And how will God be glorified forever? First of all, what is the glory of God? Uh, The word glory is one of those words that is all over the Bible. And we think we know what it means, but we don't often stop to actually ask, well, what does it mean? Uh, If you've been around church a long time or around Christianity, no doubt you've said phrases like, glory be to God. Or to God be the glory and only to him be the glory. And you've said things like this, you've thought things like this, but have you ever stopped to think, what does the Bible mean by glory? Well, Paul here, if you'll notice there in verse 20 and 21, he he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him, and he describes something that's true about God. And then he comes back around there in verse 21 and he says, To him, this person about whom I've just given this description, to him be the glory forever. And so right there you kind of get a window into what the Bible means when it says God has glory. All throughout the scriptures, the glory of God refers to the weight of God. The heaviness of who God is and what God does. Have you ever thought about that? How much does God weigh? How much does God weigh? That's the question you're a- answering when you talk about glory. Now, obviously, and kids, you know, you'll know this if you are coming on Sunday nights and learning our kids' catechism. We're not talking about physical weight. You know, God, as it says in the catechism, is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We believe that. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. But spiritually speaking, you can talk about how much God weighs. And the Bible says because of who he is and because of what he does in the world, God weighs more than can possibly be measured. The weight of God, the value of God, the treasure of who God is, is beyond our ability to calculate. And Paul here in this passage describes just one thing, only one of the many things about God that is weighty. And he says it's his ability to do great things. Did you notice that? Now, to him who is what? Able. It's talking about God's ability. God is able to do far more abundantly. Or as the King James said, exceeding abundantly more than all that we're even able to ask or think. Now, why does Paul highlight this one thing about God and say, look at how weighty it is? Because this one thing is the number one thing that should encourage us to pray. Think about it. Uh, Prayer involves two activities every single time. Thinking and asking. You agree with that? If you're not thinking, you're not praying. Jesus said as much when he said, hey, just pray repetitiously repeating the same phrases over and over again is not really praying. That's what the pagans do. They think that just saying the same things over and over just out of rote, you know, habit is going to twist God's arm or something. That's not the way God is. You got to be thoughtful in your prayers. Jesus also said, if you're not asking, you're not praying. Because prayer is simple. Prayer is just going to God and asking 
And, and God says, Jesus says, if you ask, it'll be given. If you knock, the door will be opened. If you seek, you will find. So asking and thinking are the two primary things you do when you pray. But here it says, God in his glory and weightiness far exceeds our ability to do either. So that when you come to pray to this God, yeah, you're supposed to think, yeah, you're supposed to ask, but you're also supposed to know. In fact, you're supposed to be fired up with the fact that God is able to do way more than you can even think or ask. God's power to work is not limited by our inabilities to pray. Therefore, we pray. Does that make sense? God's power and ability is not limited by my thinking ability. Praise God. I mean, all of us are limited in our ability to think. Some of us more limited than others. But all of us limited. God is not limited by our limitations. All of us get to places in our lives where we don't even know what to pray for, what to ask for. We don't even know where to begin. And yet it says here, God is not limited by our limitations in knowing what to ask for and what not to ask for. God is weighty in this sense. God is able to go far beyond our little boxes that we like to put God in. For Paul, this was the driving force of everything that he thought, everything that he taught, everything that he asked for in respect to the Ephesian Christians. I am bowing my knees, he said, we saw this last week, to the Father from whom every family on earth is named. Who is this Father? The one who is able to do more. The God who is more than we could ever ask or ever even imagine him to be. You get a sense here? Paul is painting a picture of a weight that should weigh upon you. In fact, God's weight is so big that were it fully weighed upon us, it'd crush us. When Moses asked, God, show me your glory, he didn't even know what he was asking. And God says, well, Moses, okay, I'll do this. I'll pass by and you can see just my back. You can see a little tiny part of the back, you know, the back 40 of my glory. And I'll proclaim the word about me to you, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. And that, that'll be my glory is when I share in my word, a little bit about myself, but my actual glory, my face-to-face -face glory, you can't see and live. That's how weighty God is. The, the Bible talks about an eternal weight of glory that is God's, and that one day we will somehow. God will transform us. He'll transform our bodies. He'll transform our souls so that we can look upon God's glory. But now we can't even. And yet, that is the very reason that should fuel our prayers. This is going to sting for me to say, but it's important. So I'm warning you. Often my prayerlessness and your prayerlessness is an indication of godlessness. Sometimes it's not just lack of skill. Sometimes it's not just lack of time. In fact, mostly it's not just lack of time. I mean, we all say we're busy, but too busy to pray for real? Like, really? It's often not just simply laziness, although we can be quite spiritually lazy. Oftentimes, it is just simply we don't know how weighty God is. 
we don't know to whom we are invited to come and speak. Whose throne we are given audience to come and petition. (laughs) If we did, if we longed for the immensity of the sea, we'd build the boat. And we'd set sail and get out there, wouldn't we? In fact, this is a huge reason why Jesus came to die for you. I mean, you know, often we talk about Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could get let go and, and not get punished. And that's so, so true and so good. But that's the only part of the gospel. Uh, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to let you go free. Jesus died on the cross to bring you in. He died on the cross to bring you back in to a desire and a longing for the glory of God. The Bible says as humans, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the lesser glory of created things. It's a terrible exchange that we've made. And so Jesus died so that we could trade in the lesser things and the created things that we've traded God for. We trade them back in and lay them down so that we can get God again. And so in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus When the disciples said, teach us to pray, he starts with four things, not about us, but about God. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before you ever get around to asking about the first thing for yourself, Jesus says, I want you to get an appetite and a hunger for the glory of God. Because that's what's going to get you praying. That's what's going to keep you praying. If you're praying for any other reason... You're kind of like the kid who's just taking a bath because his mama told him to. Right? When you're a kid, you don't want to take a bath. Your mom and dad make you take a bath. Hopefully, when you grow up, you still aren't taking a bath just because your mama (laughs) is going to call you. Right? Hopefully, you've graduated from your mama having to call you and be like, did you take a bath today? Right? Now, 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 sometimes your wife does take over that role and has to ask you, did you take a bath, honey? Right? But, ho- but hopefully you're graduating from that. Eating your vegetables. Hopefully your mom doesn't have to call you. Eat your veggies today? Eating a balanced diet? Everything good? Hopefully, with the training that you got as a child, you've now graduated to, I want to take a bath because I like to smell good. I actually like to smell good. <laughs> I notice how good it is to smell good. I actually like to be healthy, and so I like to eat a you know, variety of things. It may be that when at some times in our lives we pray just because we know we're supposed to, and, and, I, and I'm not actually preaching against that. Sometimes you should just pray only because you know God commanded you to pray, and that's the only reason you're going to have because you're not going to feel like praying. And you should still pray. But Jesus came to die so that we would graduate out of that and become people who want to pray because we've got a taste for the glory of God. And if you're not growing in that area in your life, you need to ask God to help you grow in that area. Lord, help me not to just check boxes off. Help me to long for the immensity of the sea. Amen. I wonder what drives your prayers. Is it this? What drives your prayers? Is it what Paul's saying here? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Second thing this morning is how we can glorify God in prayer. 
Uh, and this uh, couple of questions that always come to mind when we think about God's glory in prayer. So if, if God's glory is his weightiness, his value, uh, a natural question is, well, then how in the world can we glorify him? Right? If God is weighty in and of himself, then why does he need us to glorify him? It's a valid question. Another question we often ask, I hear this all the time, if God is going to already do his will anyway, why pray? And I think what Paul says at the end of verse 20 answers both questions brilliantly. He says to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, look at what it says, according to the power at work within us. And right there in that little phrase, he answers both of those age-old questions. That word according uh, is a very simple word. It's very common. It's just a preposition. But Paul often uses it to describe the pattern or the method that God takes to do his stuff. God always works according to a pattern. You can see it throughout the Bible. Uh, God is a very orderly God. It's not that he never exceeds our expectations. We actually just said that he always exceeds our expectations. But God always works consistently. And so when you observe God's ways in his word or in your life, you will pick up on certain patterns. And here it says God works his power that goes beyond our ability to ask and think. He works it usually through the power that he gives to work within us. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians, for example, when he said, here's the glory of the gospel. The treasure is found in jars of clay. Right? Think about this. You've got to think about that image. Treasure in jars of clay. He's describing maybe an ancient, you know, gold doubloons or something like that. You know, this ancient treasure that's just sitting there in an old, tattered, dusty jar. Which one is valuable, the jar or the treasure? Clearly the treasure, right? Uh, the jar's lack of value doesn't one whit take away the value of the treasure inside. In fact, it serves to kind of highlight it because the contrast is so big between the jar on the outside and the treasure on the inside. You can think about it in, in more modern terms, the engine inside a car. Uh, you can have the, the, uh, a car that on the outside looks tattered, little rusted, but on the inside, it could, you know, hypothetically, have a brand new, very powerful engine. It could run very smoothly and go very fast, even though it doesn't look like much. You could also have a car that looks awesome. Brand new paint job. Open the hood and there's no engine in it. Which car is going to beat the other in a race? Right? The tattered, nasty, beat up car because the inside has treasure the inside has power and here it says God loves to work this way he loves to show off the glory and the weight of his own power and ability by working through incapable people therefore prayer is the number one way to actually glorify God it's not that when we pray, we add to God's glory or make him more weighty than, than he is. That's impossible. But it's that his weightiness gets to get displayed through the weak, seemingly weak activity of a weak person like me and you. 
Think about it. I mean, prayer is the weakest thing. When judged just by a human you know, standard, it's the weakest thing you could possibly do. Uh, if prayer is just thinking and asking, I mean, how weak could you get? Just knocking on a door. I mean, probably the best description of prayer is just to think about someone yelling, Help! That's what prayer is. Help! How weak. And yet, it has been God's design throughout history and throughout time to show up precisely when God's people say, Help! Isn't that right? Now, why does he do it that way? Because, as the psalm says, when you call to me, my people, I will answer you, and when I answer, you will glorify me. Because when you call to me and I answer, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the power came from me and not from you. And yet, you'll participate in the power because the power will come into you when you pray. And the power will work through you as you pray. And so a person, one person can pray for another person. We saw this in the call to worship today. One person can pray for the healing of another and that person actually get healed by God. And it is not because person A had some super spiritual, supernatural, powerful superpower. Contrary to what sometimes you might see on TV. That's not how it works. It works when it works only because God exercises his power through a couple of weak human vessels so that at the end of it we wouldn't say, oh, wow, what an amazing preacher. He has such gifts. But so that we would say, wow, what an amazing God. We just said help. That's all we did. And he came through. It's kind of like the stories in the Old Testament where God sent the people of Israel out to battle. And he said, I don't want you to take weapons. I want you to take trumpets and jars. And I want you to blow the trumpet and smash the jar. How weird, right? I mean, you just have to stop and think about how weird that request is. And you got to stop and think how crazy Israel must have thought that was. And yet, but because they knew God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think, they went out and did it. And when they did that weak thing, the power of God came. Why did God do it that way? So that we would know the power is not of us, but of him. So that we would glorify him, that we would ascribe to him the glory which is really his, that we would not take any of the pounds off of his weight in our thinking or in our speaking or in our acting, but that we would give to him his full credit and his full due. That's why we pray. That's why we want to be a praying church. We don't want for a single moment for us to think, look what we did at Greater Hope Church. Do you agree with me there? We don't want to say that. Today we got a big milestone we're going to take at the congregational meeting. We, we don't want to say, look at all the hard work we did. I mean, we did hard work, and, and praise God we, you know, that you did. We all did. But that ain't the reason why anything spiritually good is going to happen. The only reason, we have to give all the weight and all the credit to him. The reason why you're a Christian, don't you know, has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you ever did. Or anything that you ever thought 
or anything that you ever will one day do. The reason why you became a Christian is because God came and worked his power within you. And probably as a result of somebody saying, help, help that person. They're a heathen. They're ruining their lives. Help them, Lord. Help my son. Help my daughter. Help that, that crazy teenager in the church. Help them. However someone prayed for you, they prayed for you. And God came in and he displayed his mighty power through prayer. He loves to do it. According to the power at work within us. Not our power, but his power. But not outside of us, in us. And so why do we pray if God's just going to do what he wants to do anyway? Because don't you think one of the things God wants to do is to do things because people pray for him? Right? If God does all that he wants to do, what if he wants to do what he does through prayer? Which the Bible says everywhere that's exactly what he wants. That's exactly what he has willed. To do many of his most mighty works through the prayers of his weak people. Calling out help. Asking God to intervene in ways that we could not. This morning, do you know how to cry help? If you know how to cry help, you're qualified to pray. It's a funny thing. I mean, really, it's only those who are unqualified to pray who are qualified to pray. That's funny, isn't it? As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, I love, we love reading that with our kids. Uh, sometimes all you need is need. But sometimes that's the only thing you don't have. Or at least that's the only thing you've convinced yourself you don't have. And so what keeps us from prayer is not only a lack of hunger and thirst for God's glory, but also a lack of sensitivity to how needy we really are. We convince ourselves because of all the stuff we got and all the people that are applauding us or praising us or whatever the case may be. We convince ourselves we don't really need anything. We got it. That's the worst thing we can do. Paul is encouraging the Ephesians. He's encouraging us to remember it is God whose ability exceeds our ability to think or ask. And therefore, it's God's power that works within us in prayer, which is God's normal pattern of working. If you know how to cry for help, you know how to pray. Third thing, and last thing this morning, how will God be glorified forever? So God's glory is his weightiness. Uh, in prayer, we don't add to his weightiness, but we acknowledge it. We ascribe it to him. We, uh, we follow in the path that he has called us to follow in, and he wants to do his work through the neediness of people. But how will God be glorified forever? Look at what it says there in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice where and how God gets ultimate glory is through two things or in two things, in the church and in Christ Jesus? And I want to tell you right there in those two words, church and Christ, there is a summary of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is about how God is building his church. He's gathering his people. Uh, people, when, he, when they were made in his image, were made to be with him. 
but people ran away from him as far as they could, as fast as they could. And yet now in Christ, God is gathering his people back together to be with him, to pursue his glory. The church, the church is the gathering of God's people back to himself through the cross. The whole Bible is about that. And the whole Bible at the same time is about the Christ. Because it's only through God's anointed one, God's Christ, God's Messiah, all those words mean the same thing. It's through God's anointed one that God is gathering his people for his own glory. Any place you go in the Bible, you're reading a story about God gathering his people to himself under his rule and blessing under Christ the King. Everywhere in the Bible. And Paul says, you want to know, if you want to know how God is going to be glorified through all generations and forever and ever, it's through that story. Therefore, when you pray, don't bring your own plot and story into the picture to crowd out God's story and God's plot. Y'all hear me? Um, <laughs> I do this all the time in my prayers. I come to God thinking, okay, I, I know what I need. Like I, I went on and I read the WebMD. And so now I'm an expert spiritually in what I need, the kind of care I need and the kind of way I want my life to go. And I, I know how I want my family's life to go and my church life to go. I know. I got the plan. And so I come to God and say, oh, God, bless the plans that I have made. Bless the story that I've already written, O oh Lord. The novel of my life that I've come up with in my own imagination. Bless it, Lord, because you know how great it is. I don't actually say those words, of course. But often I have that heart. Do you? And here it says, no, think about it. The only way God is going to be glorified in all generations, meaning in all of history, and eternally forever and ever, is through the story of his church and his son, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, before you ever pray about give me my daily bread and forgive me my sins, pray this, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of the way you come to long for the immensity of God, long for the glory of God to go and pray is you realize his story is better than yours. His plot line for your life is going to be way better than you could ever invent or make up. It will not seem that way often. Okay, it will not seem that way often. But you can trust he's able to think beyond you. He's able to ask beyond you. It is better even though it doesn't seem that way to you. And so you can come to him with full trust. God, glorify yourself. This is your greatest work. You've never done anything greater than to gather your people through your son, Jesus Christ. Let that drive my prayers. Let that set the agenda for my life. Don't let me import my own agenda into the mix. Don't let me, especially don't let me crowd out your agenda with mine. Subdue me. Even Jesus himself. Think about this is amazing. Even Jesus himself had to pray like this. Did he not? In the Garden of Eden, not Eden, Gethsemane, which was kind of like a new Garden of Eden, <laughs> where Jesus, unlike Adam, said, your will be done, not mine. Your story, 
I'm your Christ. These are your people, your church. Let your will be done for your church and your Christ, not mine, not anyone else's. I'll drink the cup of suffering if it serves the purposes of your great story. Job prayed that way. Abraham prayed that way. Moses prayed that way. David prayed that way. Nehemiah prayed that way. Jeremiah prayed that way. Jesus prayed that way. And here's Paul praying that way. And do you think you're better than any of those people? Do you think you've come up with a better plot than any of those people could have? And yet all of them at some point said, oh God, all we are is just a bunch of sin. But Lord, you have a wise and gracious plan. Work that plan out. At the end of the day, that's what we need. Your will be done, God. When I look at the cross of Jesus, I see it. I see it clearly, plain as day. It's not about me. I mean, I think it shows just the relentlessness of our selfishness that we can even turn Christianity into being about us. That we can look at the cross and still walk away thinking, this is about me. That's crazy. It's not about me. It's also not by me. I look at the cross and I see, man, I could never have done that. Put me on a cross and it's just a man crucified. It's not the salvation of the world, but he could. When I look at the cross, I realize it's not for me. It's for my salvation, but it ain't ultimately for my glory. It's not my story. It's not my name that's going to be praised forever and ever. It's his. And so, just like our, our French explorer said at the beginning, if you want to learn how to pray, the best thing to do is not to attend lectures on prayer. The best thing to do is to fill your heart with the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, please make us into a praying people. And Lord, please write these words on our hearts so that we would hunger and thirst for your glory alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.